0: Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello. So this week, we're discussing Clueless, Amy Heckerling's cult classic modern update of Jane Austen's Emma. Alicia Silverstone stars as Cher, a blithely spoiled LA teenager who decides to do good for the world by taking awkward new girl tie played by Brittany Murphy, under her wing. This was made in 1995. It had its anniversary a few years ago to much fanfare. But uh, we're discussing it this week because there is a new adaptation of Emma set in the 19th century uh, out at the moment. We will be covering that soon. We had planned to do that this week, but I have had a kidney stone for five days and have not left my apartment. So we're doing this instead. Uh, we'll get to the new one as soon as possible, but uh this is a good thing to talk about instead because it's awesome. So we had a lot of requests for discussions of Clueless, uh, and we are happy to provide the service to you because uh, it's such a good film. You have seen this many times; I have not, so we come from slightly different perspectives.
1: Yeah, I didn't feel the need to rewatch this because I was like, I feel like during my teen movie phase, as an actual teen, I saw this enough. <laughs> Great film.
0: <laughs> yeah, I saw it for the first time. At the age of 22, at a public screening at the Brooklyn Academy of Music in Brooklyn, I was maybe the only person there who had not seen Clueless before. Everyone was laughing before the jokes started, (laughs) because they were so excited to be at the screening of Clueless. I had that experience seeing um, This is Spinal Tap at the New York Film Festival, because they used to do like 25th anniversary screenings of movies like that, which they seem to have stopped doing. But uh, it's really fun when... Theaters will do a screening like that of a really popular sort of cults type movie because the audience gets so into it. And I love This Is Spinal Tap. So I was really like just in the zone for that. And Clueless was kind of a beautiful experience because I had no context for anything except the novel Emma. But everyone there was so overjoyed that I was just like riding the high of everyone's pleasure and also experiencing this great film. As an actual teenager myself, I was way too much of a snob to have enjoyed something like this. Like, maybe this one I would have appreciated because it's so good, but I just did not like this type of movie. It Like, I didn't like stuff about teenagers. I didn't like girly stuff. I was just a big no. So I think it was good that I didn't see it until I was a little bit older, although it does seem a bit crazy in retrospect. And I hadn't seen it since then. I rewatched it just before this. Did you see Mean this, Girls so. as a teen? I have literally never seen Mean Girls. I have never seen that so movie. So bizarre. Which is not, it's one of those things that I've been meaning to see for like yeah. my whole life and it just somehow has now
1: I mean, got to the point where I mean, I probably only saw Mean Girls like twice, but I feel like I have that film memorised because of the amount that people like quoted it and all the memes that resulted. <laughs> well, that is exactly the sort of thing where at the time I was not interested in it
0: at all. And now as an adult, obviously, I know that I would like it and it's just has not happened. So... At some point, I will watch Me Girls and appreciate it. I love Tina Fey's work. so. But that is a good comparison point of stuff that I was just like, yes. <laughs> I'm going to watch uh, Half Nelson, a dark film about Ryan Gosling being addicted to drugs, instead of something like this. Uh, that was what I was doing at 16. But this was particularly interesting for me to watch this week, because I, last week,
1: watched most of the adaptations that exist of Emma. And indeed have been blogging Emma, the novel, on our Patreon. So we yes. are currently like up to the neck in Emma, which is, we are once again at odds, because when I watched the new Emma movie, which I will not go into because we are going to have an episode on it, I had never read Emma. I did not know what was going to happen. So I was sitting there, furiously trying to remember plot points from Clueless, being like, <laughs> is Mr. Knightley the love interest? <laughs> yes. I mean,
0: Emma definitely is the most opaque... Of her books in terms of who the ultimate end game is and the movies tend to make it more explicit because it's just how movies work but like yeah. I said this in one of the blogs I read Emma for the first time in an independent study in my last semester of high school which was basically like me and my favorite teacher just like reading books in her office we did it over the course of a couple of weeks and I remember her asking me at some point like who do you think Emma is going to marry at the end, and I had no idea. I was just like, "I, I, I, Mr. Elton? It must have been pretty early in the book, but it's like, as a teenager, you can't grasp Mr. Knightley as a love interest at the beginning, because he's old, and you're just like, what? As an adult reading the book, I was like, oh, this is very obvious, but it's still a little bit fuzzier than in some of the other ones, and uh, the adaptations tend to make it much clearer, because again, that's how films work, but The structure of the book is interesting because it's not as focused wholly on that one relationship in the way that many romances are. And so the character of Emma just has a lot going on in a way that's very engaging. And Clueless also, Paul Rudd, who plays Josh, who is the Mr. Knightley character in this, is really not in the movie very much. No. At all. He's perfect, he's great, but he's not – he's just kind of this figure in the background who like says sarcastic things occasionally, and Cher gets to like go and have all these ridiculous adventures, and that's the drama of the film, which I think is – I think that's part of what has given it so much longevity, is that it's not actually about the romance, even though the romance is very satisfying, it's about her
1: as a character being sort of yeah, absurd like, and Alicia lovable. Silverstone's star power in this movie is like phenomenal. She's so good. <laughs> she is just.
0: Her charisma is so off the charts, it's incomprehensible.
1: And she was quite young when they did it. She was she was legit like 17. We both read there's this, you know, oral history of the movie as there is with every one of these films that we'll link to in the show notes. And they're kind of talking about the casting process for the film and how the director, uh Amy Hackling was just like we have to have this girl who was in like the, what was it, Guns N' Roses video or something. She was in this like trio of videos for like some cock rock band in the 90s. And it was like, we must have her. And they auditioned like a bajillion people, including Reese Witherspoon, and then just end up coming back to Alicia Silverstone because she's just so funny and charming. Well, and she
0: said, that, I, which I thought was so interesting, that she didn't think she was funny and so she was a bit concerned about doing it. And they obviously won her over. And she just played it totally sincerely. Like Cher takes everything really, really seriously and she means everything, which obviously most comedians will say that you're not trying to play a joke, right? Like You're just trying to play the character meaning it and that's where good comedy comes from. But it really makes sense in the context of this character because she is so blithely unaware of so much that's happening around her and so well-meaning but totally uh, clueless that she is hilarious but very sweet and earnest she just is completely just had no idea about anything
1: and that's what makes it so funny it's not mean-spirited but you're just like oh my god like how have you survived incidentally just to correct myself the music videos that she started to in were three music videos by Aerosmith crying amazing and crazy which were (laughs) the crying she became very famous for playing the girl in that video and that is where The director of this film found her which is wild it's also kind of wild to be like a 16 year old girl who becomes famous because of an Aerosmith video (laughs) but okay a different time
0: it was definitely a different different time
1: I was kind of thinking that when I was revisiting it because I was like looking at pictures of Paul Rudd in the movie and I'm like he is so old (laughs) which is not what we usually think of Paul Rudd now because he's famously one of these people who doesn't age which just FYI he looks his age. He's just very rich and good looking. He looks middle aged. Okay, yes. he colors his hair. He does have wrinkles. He's just a very good looking man. But anyway, yeah. In this, it's like I feel like kind of nowadays in a teen movie this light hearted, you probably wouldn't have a romance between like a sixteen year old and a college guy. No. But also in this, it's kind of like it's very much kind of still in that period of teen dramas where there's like the certain girls who're like, oh, I don't date high school boys, and that's like a whole running joke with her. <laughs>
0: Yes, she's really, really disdainful of all the high school boys who are also presented in the movie as dogs, completely unappealing.
1: They're the worst. (laughs) Yeah,
0: (laughs) either like juvenile and terrible, or just like mean. The only one who is appealing at all is the guy who Ty, who's the played by Brittany Murphy, who's a girl. She sort of Yeah. yeah. She hits it off with him immediately and Cher is like, No, he is not good enough. And he's this like sweet, quite cute kid and it's clear it's mean it's so stupid. You're just like, oh no. Like Ty is also a stoner, which she clearly is not willing to process because she can't grasp what is going on with other people and so she just sort of remakes (laughs) her in her own image and is like, No, you don't want that, you know, nice kind of loser guy you want this guy who's actually an asshole I mean it's just a fiasco the whole thing is a fiasco but other than that one kid all of the high schoolers the high school boys are just like a mess and so of course Paul Rudd who's a college student and isn't
1: is a great option because who else is she gonna date like nobody yeah, so Amy Herkeling, the director of this movie. It's weird because like this film is so super famous, but I kind of, if someone was like, who directed this film, I wouldn't have been able to tell you. But Amy Herkeling was like this big comedy director mostly, kind of in the 80s and 90s. She's, her career's kind of tailed off over the past 15 years. But I was kind of surprised to look at her filmography and see like how much she's done, how big her movies are. Because as we've discussed in previous episodes, Women directors generally don't get much career longevity. Um, but like the big movies she's known for making are Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which is a different kind of teen movie, and Luke Who's Talking and Clueless. She's done like a bunch of other stuff, but she kind of focused on comedies and made just like really mainstream, broad comedies that were generally commercially successful. Fast Times at Ridgemont High is like one of the most iconic teen movies. It is definitely not as comedic as this. And I remember when I watched it as a teenager, I was like quite surprised. Um, because like it's billed as a comedy drama, but it's quite intense, and it's like intentionally really realistic. So it kind of differs quite a lot from John Hughes movies, which were the ultimate teen movies at the time. But that's like a really interesting movie to have as your debut, I think, because it was a huge hit, and it's a bit more like artsy than the rest of the films she made. So when I saw
0: Clueless at the cinema, she was there doing a talk with Uh, Alicia Silverstone and maybe someone else, and they were showing also the film she had coming out then, which was this vampire movie called Vamps, which I'm sad to report was not good. And yeah, no one watched that. But she was talking about her career and how this had all started, et cetera, et cetera. And it was interesting to hear her talk about the whole process because there just were not many female filmmakers at that time who were getting anywhere. Certainly not within the studio system. And I if I'm remembering correctly, like Fast Times at Ridgemont High was just such an insane hit that she then had more cachet
1: than Yeah. And she was just getting know. like sent loads of scripts. I think I got the impression that like once she had a foothold, she then like carved out kind of a career making comedy movies. And then Clueless was like one of her passion projects. And then she had to redraft it like a dozen times because she originally pitched it as a TV show. And then it kind of finally wound up being this. Well, what's the real depressing thing is that Clueless Clueless was not a massive box office hit at the time. It did perfectly fine, but it wasn't. I mean, it was pretty big. It was like the number one movie when it came out in America. I was under the impression it was a big hit.
0: It made 56.1 million total, which is good. It wasn't like it was a flop at all, but it wasn't like it was a Titanic hit. Which is twice as much as Fast Times or Richmond High made, so I don't know where how all this is getting measured. But, I mean, the lasting longevity of Clueless definitely is the fact that it became such a – like, cult hit isn't quite the right term because it was popular at the time, but it has had
1: this incredible longevity among people that who are still watching it now. Yeah. I mean, it kind of right? revitalized teen movies as well, because it's like she kind of – Her career, like, spanned the period when teen movies were really big. Because when Fast Times came out, that was, like, the early 80s. And there was this big boom of John Hughes movies. And then by the time you got to the mid-90s, it was really flagging. And this movie then, like, kicked off another burst. And then, like, there was a real drought period, kind of in the 2000 to 2010s, where you basically had Mean Girls and Easy A and nothing else. But it's like, you know, these things always go in peaks and troughs. And Clueless had this, like, huge cultural impact. Right. And so
0: the fact that her career sort of tailed off after that is really grim. She's still worked a lot. She does a lot of TV now. It's not like she's been you know, completely cast out of Hollywood or anything, but it definitely, you know, male directors who had had that kind of run would not have would not be in the position that she found herself in in the aftermath of these films, which is a bummer. But what can you do? It is what it is. It's a miracle as it is that this movie happened and that she had the success that she had for the period that she did because it just was not happening. And watching this movie, I really think it's a perfect film. Like, I don't think I would change basically anything about it. And the sensibility is so specific to the teen girls of that period in a way that, feels untampered with, although obviously the studio, yeah. I, mean, I mean,
1: it's really 90s, it's really exaggerated, and it's got the same tone as Emma, which is satirical and class conscious while also being really warm and affectionate. Well, as someone who has read Emma, the novel, <laughs> I have I mean, I've seen one of the Emma films, Morgan, and I think we can both agree I'm now an expert.
0: <laughs> I mean, what's interesting about it and I've been thinking about this a lot because I've watched all of these adaptations and also read the book is I think this is the best adaptation of Emma. I haven't seen the new one, but I I'm (laughs) pretty sure it's definitely better than the new film. (laughs) Um, But even just like as an adaptation, right. Irrespective of the quality of the film, it's definitely the best film of all these, but I think it's the best adaptation. Also the one with Romola Garai and Johnny Lee Miller, which is a mini series. The BBC did 10 years ago or so is also really excellent. And I would recommend that, but this is the, best adaptation of the book it deals with the various strands of the plot in a very smart way it makes smart changes all the other adaptations have certain things that they're good at and certain things that they just don't handle very well and most of the films the romance is just awkward because he's so much older and they just don't really know how to manage it and none of them are terrible but none of them are that great and she, she clearly totally gets the book with this movie, which is really lovely. But the interesting thing about Emma, the novel, and we'll talk about this more when we do the other film, I'm sure, is that she's actually really thoughtful and intelligent in that book. It's just that it's all in her head. And you, it's really hard to dramatize that because it's all her like doubt and narration of what's happening. And she doesn't actually say it. And externally that's not coming across as much and I think it's kind of an unadaptable book like I just I don't think you actually can do it in a way that's totally satisfying it seems like an impossible task to me that's been my conclusion based on all of this reading and watching I've been doing and so the best way to do it is to just be like we're not even going to bother trying with the original setting we're just going to stick it in a different period and change as much as we want and so the fact that it is in many ways not quite getting what the book is doing doesn't matter because it's doing its own thing and that combination of getting certain things about the spirit of the book really right and getting the plot in a smart way and then adding her own understanding of teenagers in the 90s and Los Angeles and all of this stuff is a really satisfying mix and is more interesting than a straight adaptation which can never quite achieve what the book is doing if you get what I mean it's just it works better I think. Even if Cher is, like, I love Cher, but she, Emma is much smarter. <laughs> and more sensible yeah, than I Cher. Yeah, I mean, Cher is a ditz.
1: She is also yes. 16.
0: <laughs> yes. I mean, and, like, I think she's great. And the movie is really set- smart about her and in presenting her character in a sympathetic way while also understanding that she is a diss and just so like chronically self-absorbed that it's funny like it doesn't let her off it could easily turn into just this like yeah she's spoiled but it's it's all fine and like the movie does love her and it's not like it's indicting her for things but the scene i think is the best on that level is when she's taking her driving test and she's just horrible at driving like she's (laughs) running into things she's like swerving in between lanes And driving instructor is just like, what the fuck is going on? Like, please pull over. And she thinks that she'll just be able to, you know, pass anyway, because she just will ask and everything will work out for her because that's the way her entire life works. And he's like, no, you can't drive. You almost killed someone. (laughs) What? (laughs) (laughs) And it's like a light bulb goes off in her head that she can't actually control the entire world because that's not how life works. And it, epitomizes so much of the movie to me because it is sympathetic to her. It's not cruel, but it also is like, well,
1: but yeah, you're an idiot, you know. So I was like just looking up to see when the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie was came out, like the original one. It came out in 92. This movie came out in, in 95, but it was in development for like fucking years. And it kind of seems like these films are both like emerging from the exact same sort of everyone is aware of the valley girl stereotype by this point but it's kind of reached past the point where people are starting to try and reclaim it instead of just mocking these girls like when you think about the way Cher behaves in this and the way buffy does in the tv series at the beginning like her origins they are identical they are basically the same character (laughs) like because the whole point of buffy is that she is this like quite spoiled well-meaning Ditzy like cheerleader girl, and it's exactly what would happen if like Cher was told that she had to be a vampire hunter, and it's interesting that that archetype is like so precise of the nineties, and like obviously much more like derided in the eighties, and like nowadays when you see the equivalent of that, it's still stuck in the nineties because like obviously nowadays the stereotypes are different, but it's like this is stuck so much in pop culture that we still have it.
0: Yeah, I mean we were all the kids at this point, but.
1: I still like it evokes something so specific to me, I mean, the from childhood and like the cut of the clothes, like the a- like I remember kids in my primary school like putting on valley girl accents in Scotland, <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, one hundred percent I
0: also like I encountered some young male people over the summer for Los Angeles who didn't talk exactly like this because it's you know, time has passed and language changes, but it was shockingly similar. So
1: something persists. The the spirit met, lives on. You met some, like, TikTok boys. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, I mean, one of the thing that sort of things that kind of fascinates me
0: about the teen movie thing, they're not all set in Los Angeles, obviously. Like, Mean Girls is not, for instance. I know that, even though I haven't seen it, because a friend of mine went to the high school in which they filmed that movie. But so many of them are set in LA. And which makes sense because Hollywood is in Los Angeles and that's what these people are, you know, seeing and experiencing and are obsessed with. But the specific LA-ness of this movie and the way that all of these other movies are kind of in dialogue with each other about the setting and the yeah. characters is really interesting to me. Like Booksmart, I was thinking about a lot watching this because that is also such a Los Angeles movie. And yeah, the like blithe spoiled thing is such a product of that place and that time. Not that there
1: aren't rich, spoiled kids in other places, of course, but there's a quality to her. Oh, for sure. And also, like, the relationship she has with her dad. Like, there was also, like, the, the side character that has a nose job in high school and stuff, but the kind of the thing they have with her dad... Is that she is obviously this like classic spoiled girl who lives in this like very California kind of mansion house where she's like oh the the columns are like vintage 1972 oh and all this God. nonsense <laughs> and Amazing. she has the famous like computer showing all her outfits which is the most delightfully piece of like 90s technology <laughs> but her dad's concept is basically like you c- kind of see him and you're like this man has murdered like this this <laughs> is like this is like a mob <laughs> lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> but he just has this like really clueless teenage daughter who's just like, "Oh, daddy, hello." <laughs> and
0: the horrible portrait of her mother. Oh god, on the amazing wall. with the
1: feathered hair.
0: Oh my god, so good. And I mean, the just the fact that the driving is such a central part of what's going yeah. on, right? And she gets stranded after this party and this, I mean, they're making all the jokes about the locations and which totally fly over my head because I do not live in Los Angeles, but it Engages with the setting in a way that is simultaneously clearly totally fantasy because this movie is not really engaging with reality in a you know deep way, but also is granular enough that it feels specific, which is very very satisfying. Is just the it's the most nineties movie. The clothes. I mean, this
1: movie created the knee (laughs) sock. Like, (laughs) this film, people started wearing knee socks, and it was all downhill from Britney onwards. (laughs) Right. It's also, I mean, I always think it's
0: interesting when outfits from movies have such a long cultural life. After the fact, I mean, we always reference the dress from Atonement, which is just, like, yeah, but people, like, everyone thing.
1: knows the dress from Atonement, no, but nobody wears the dress from Atonement. People fucking wear the clueless yellow outfit, like, yes. every Halloween. You can, like, go to Primark and get that outfit and just wear it around. I have definitely attended parties where people have casually been dressed as Sharp from Clueless, <laughs>
0: yes. And so, there were two adaptations the year right after this, which were obviously made independently of this happening because the productions would have overlapped. But then the next one is the one with Romola Garay, which I just mentioned, which I think is the best of, of the other adaptations. And the last scene, the dress she wears when they're like going off to their honeymoon, is exactly the same yellow color as Cher's suit and has little like black lines on it. And I was like, well, this is
1: clearly a reference to that. Does she wear yellow in the book? Because like in the new movie, she wears yellow. It's clueless. It's 100% a clueless reference. Because I was like, when I was watching the movie, I was like, is this Is like a yellow dress, like her key thing in the book? Or did clueless just make (laughs) no, it's
0: clueless. Austin is very low on physical description. She doesn't tend to talk about that stuff at all. I am quite certain she does not say anything about Emma's hair color it's
1: just like law that Emma
0: must be blonde which is
1: why the Kate yeah, Beckinsale is the, version is, is the, like the, mm. no it's like every everyone knows that the kind of the ditzy society girl must be a blonde <laughs> yes she I think mentions that like Mrs. Elton
0: wears tacky clothes like she, Mrs. Elton talks about her clothes mm-hmm. and how she didn't want to have you know too much ruffle or whatever but you have to look respectable as an yeah. important lady but like she's not Going farther than that. So it's just so delightful to me that it's clueless is so enshrined in pop culture that these subsequent adaptations are like, well, we have to have a clueless dress in our costume, you know? And rightly so. I mean, that is what people recall. So one of the other sort of big relationships we haven't talked about, really the central relationship. Of the movie from a plot perspective, aside from the romance, is Cher and Ty, the Brittany Murphy character, who is the Harriet character from the novel, who is the new girl at the school, dressed in classic 90s stoner fashion when she <laughs> <Yes>. arrives. Amazing. <laughs> like plaid, shirt, like baggy pants. She, I think she asks, basically asks them if they know where to get. I don't remember exactly how she she, phrases it.
1: She's like, I need some herbal, whatever. And they're like, well, we have Coke in the cafeteria, but we don't have any tea. And she's like, you have Coke here? (laughs) Yes, it's great. And they, of course, do not understand any of
0: this at all. But they sort of adopt her, and she's excited just to have friends and gets sort of suckered by the Valley Girl thing. So they make her over, and... Ah, uh, Cher
1: decides she's going to direct her love life, as in the novel. Yeah, I mean it's very much like a more. This is like the nice version of what happens in Mean Girls. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's totally well intentioned, as it is in the book, but
0: fundamentally misguided, as we were alluding to earlier, because Ty meets the the stoner guy who's very nice and likes her, but Cher rules him out immediately and then goes on this, you know quest to get her involved with someone else and it doesn't work and of course she winds up with a stoner guy at the end because that's how plot functions but i found it really interesting to watch in the context of the book because one Brittany murphy is just absolutely hilarious in this movie she is so so funny also playing a very silly girl I mean, they're both just sort of absurd people. But she has a certain kind of knowingness of some things that Cher doesn't, that means that there's not like she's not such a neophyte that it feels completely imbalanced, although she's definitely just like, whatever you say, Cher, I'll do it.
1: I mean, she's the one who delivers the iconic line you're a virgin who can't drive. Oh my god.
0: (laughs) Yes, sublime. (laughs) So she has sort of experience, which Cher doesn't have, but Cher has social position, which is what she's trying to sort of bestow upon her. And Cher doesn't grasp that she, that her sort of bestowing this isn't actually worth anything in like a real sense. The movie sands down the class stuff in the book in a big way because it all has to kind of be nice at the end. And the end of the book is pretty awkward. And the stuff with Harriet winds up being pretty awful, really. I mean, she gets to marry the guy she should have married, but the situation with Harriet and Emma at the end of the novel is just bad, because Emma was awful to her. Whereas this, that can't quite be the situation, because it's a nice teen movie, and so that's not what's gonna happen. And it is clear that Ty is not from the same social position that Cher is, but they don't go into that in too much detail, and It is more about the just sort of social interactions they're having with the other kids. And the fact that they're both so silly makes it feel more even to me. And they both end up with the right guy. So it's fine. But it was just interesting to me to see the way that she had avoided certain things that the novel does that are interesting and make the reader uncomfortable in a productive way. And then also fixed certain other elements. Because the way the novel ends is that like, the poorer people marry each other and the richer people marry each other and, yeah. like, that's the way it should be, right? Which is obviously, I mean, those the same characters get together here because it has to be that way, but it doesn't feel as fraught as in the novel because you don't have the gradations in such a queer manner. But the converse of that is that the class stuff isn't really delved into that much. Like, they make fun of the characters for being so rich. Like, part of the absurdity of Cher is that she lives in this huge house. But... The only real critique of that is coming from Josh, who's just like, capitalism is bad or whatever it is that he's saying. He's just like very college.
1: He's very college.
0: Extremely, extremely so. So I don't even think it's necessarily a flaw of the movie. As I said, I think it's pretty much a perfect film. But it's definitely like she shied away from that a bit, I think, in the interest of making the movie more fun and less thought provoking, which is fine. But it is a way that the novel is doing something a little bit more discomforting. I think. But I do love Brittany Murphy in that role. She's really wonderful. Stacey Dash is really great as Dion too, uh, even though she
1: is now bad. She's, she's not great. Yep. Interesting behind the scenes fact about Clueless, which I personally have no recollection of this making an impact, but perhaps you will because you've seen it more recently. Um, it was shot by cinematographer Bill Pope, kind of an iconic blockbuster cinematographer. He made the Matrix movies and invented all of those like, wild Matrix camera techniques. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, and he's directed like a bunch of Barry Sonnenfeld films which are always like really interestingly shot. No, not directed, he shot them. And he his next movie is Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings for Marvel. So it's like I definitely have no memory of like kill cool cinematography in this film, but I think the last time I watched it was before I knew what cinematography was. So I mean it's not experimental,
0: no. but it's really beautifully shot. Like it looks great. Which is partially also like it was the nineties and Everything was shot on film, and everything <laughs> looked better because that's how that works. But you have all the like L.A. light, right, and the bright colors, which is partially just the setting and partially the clothes and the sets, and it's all, it's bubblegum on purpose. Yeah, it's a great looking movie, although not cinematographically, you know, bold in the way that you are describing. I would say no.
1: Were there other like '90s kind of literary? updates
0: the only major one that i can recall is 10 things i hate about you which we've discussed and then the other one that i that came to mind for me while watching this was she's the man which was
1: a 2000s movie but operating
0: in a similar spirit which i believe i saw on a plane and so i do not have a deep level of insight i've not i've not seen that but i hear it's actually fine See, this is the thing. I watched that on a plane when I was a teenager and was like, I hate this movie. And I strongly suspect that if I watched it now, I would be like, that's a fun film. But I was not in the mindset to be appreciating it at the time. As we talked about on the 10 Things I Hate About You episode, when I saw that as a teenager, I was like, I hate this film. It sucks. And then I watched it as an adult and I was like, it's pretty good. (laughs) I do think the 10 Things I Hate About You comparison is interesting because they're both trying to update classic source material that's i mean very different source text but 10 things i hate about you faces a diff- more difficult challenge in that the source text sucks and so
1: yeah they, we did we did a whole episode
0: right. about, about so this <laughs> they do certain things that are smart and interesting and very tied into the sort of contemporary period and the acting is great it's much more angsty than this because that's the nature of the story. But they are too tied to the plot of that in a way that is just like it can't work ultimately because the the play sucks. And in this, she does stick with the sort of outcomes of the novel, but the novel is just so much better than that play. And she also, it never feels to me like she's sort of fetishistically, like I have to do the things. It's very like light. Yeah. I mean, the thing that she does that's the most different, obviously, that is really funny is the Frank Churchill character is gay in this film, instead oh, of that, yeah. like the whole Jane Fairfax situation, which in the novel is this sort of like secret engagement and this is big drama. Here, the secret he has is that he's gay. And so Cher's like, why doesn't he want to make out with me? <laughs> <It's> just <laughs> just <laughs> not understood. Um, and so she cuts away a big part of the plot by just sidestepping that but in a way that's very smart and feels sort of tied into the cultural moment and it's really funny that actor is very entertaining so again the sort of fidelity to the source text versus being willing to just do whatever in service of the actual film i think is she hits a really good balance there i mean i i think i was by far the best of of the books and as i keep saying on this podcast week after week people should read it if they have it
1: highly recommend. <laughs> if there are any listeners who are literate and have not escaped morgan's clutches please read emma and join us next week for the real emma the yes. new emma directed by autumn dewild great name yeah first time director although she's like a long time photographer and uh yeah new austin yes Thank
0: you to everyone for listening and for uh, putting up with our delays, etc. cetera, this week due to my health problems. There is all of our Emma stuff on Patreon, many weeks of blogs about the book and a post about the other adaptations that I was referencing in more detail uh, in this conversation. And next week we will have our other Emma
1: episode. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my writing on the Daily Dot, and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor.
0: And you can find me on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. Our Tumblr is overinvested podcast, and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.